Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm going to guide you gently through another show in August, but we're busy and there's lots going on and loads to chat about. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Washkut, who's the uh, executive editor of PR Week. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Went to the baseball this week, didn't I you, did, to watch yeah. those Mets? How, how was that? Uh, you know, they've had a, they've had a long season. My wife went on Friday, uh, Monday, the game was kind of washed out and the Mets were winning, of course. And yes. then, uh, they actually finished the game after midnight they and they, they won. won late night, so yes. she didn't stick around for that bit. Uh, but yeah, but we've got a fantastic guest for you this week, listeners. It's the legend himself. It's Dave Sampson. U.S. COO and Global Vice Chairman Corporate Affairs at Edelman. Dave, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to be with you, Steve and Frank. Yes, great to have you on. I look forward to the conversation. And we're chatting to you because you're retiring, such a young man. So we'll get into that and talk about (laughs) your career and the agency and the client side and all the other issues and get a bit of your expertise in. Well, then we'll pick up on some new stories. Porto Novelli have appointed, finally appointed a new CEO. ICF Next, their marketing group is spinning off and rebranding. We'll talk about why more agencies are becoming B Corps. We'll talk about why Colgate is uncovering the lies people tell their dentists. Can you believe it? I can. I tell lots of lies to my dentists. Actually, I think we all do. And IKEA has done a big QR code thing with the big bag activation. And what was this riot in Union Square all about with uh, the influencer community? And was Frank Washcook there? We'll find out later in the show. But Dave... Over to you first. You're you're retiring from Edelman. You've been there three and a half years doing various roles. And um, after a, a long career at Chevron and other, a lot of other clients, Levi Strauss, IBM, Ketchum, Oracle, and uh, great experience on both sides of the fence. But what, what's, what sort of um, led you to that, you know, stepping back a little bit? Because uh, I know Chevron had this rule, didn't they? You had to sort of retire at a certain age and, and the CEO there actually yeah. went as well for that reason. But this one is more of a personal choice. Talk us through it. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, Chevron, when I was there, they have mandatory retirement for folks. But actually, interestingly, they just extended it it's usually at 65 and they just extended it for the current CEO. Um, the board did. So oh, that's the first time that's, that's ever happened. Um, but you know, I, so I announced that I was retiring about three and a half years ago. And then I ran into, to Richard Edelman at a page event in Boston. I went for a walk with him and within an hour I'd had committed to come to work for Edelman. <laughs> that's and, the way uh, he works, isn't it? And so it's been, <laughs> he's pretty, pers- yes, you know, you know, Richard, he's a pretty persuasive <laughs> Guy and you know and I really went there for for three reasons. I went there one to work for Richard because I think um, in many respects he's um, unparalleled in the agency world and what he's done with uh, with Edelman since taking over from his father more than a quarter century ago. Um, I went there because of the culture. The uh, it was family run business and I like that. And then you know I went there because of the scale. I mean after having worked for companies like Levi Strauss and IBM, Oracle. And Chevron for you know almost you know more than almost a half of my career I guess um, in that one company you know I wanted to continue to play on a global scale and Edelman gave me the chance to do it but 
Um, on Father's Day, I told my uh, daughter that I was going to stop work to focus on her. Um, she's at a critical point uh, in her life as she heads into her final year of high school. Um, I've had a remarkable career that's extended over four decades. And, you know, and what you realize when you sit in the roles that I've sat in is that you don't get to these positions without the support of your family. And, uh, and so a lot of what I've achieved has been, you know, um, in some respects at the expense of my family, you know, and my wife, uh, Josephine, who's awesome, she knew what she was signing up for. Um, but, you know, my daughter, Ava, you know, didn't sign up for the same thing. And I, you know, I felt like I'm at a point in my life where now I can dedicate my energy to her. And so that's what I've decided to do. Yeah, good for you. And um, it's a good point about the these are great roles. These are great jobs, aren't they? But it is the family that has to be totally supportive and and deal with that. For example, I think you spent a few months in Asia, didn't you? You were sort of a, a roving I brief did. for Edelman, and one of those roles involved spending <laughs> a few months in Asia, which was a great opportunity. But again, you're away from the family, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I have a, a kind of a joke inside Edelman that you're not fully employed if you don't have two full-time <laughs> jobs. And so, you know, and when I came in the the firm, I said to, to Richard and my colleagues, just, you know, I'll do, you know, I came into the global vice chairman of corporate affairs role. And that's one that I've had constant, has held constant since I've been here. But I also said, just put me where I can add value. And so, you know, I had a chance to, you know, a stint of running this office here in the Bay Area. Uh, same thing in New York. And then, you know, almost five months in, in Asia, which was a really a career highlight for me, but um, was, you know, again, took me away from my family for a significant period of time. And so, um, yeah, you know, and that's the, that's the constant struggle that I think a lot of people that sit, you know, in top communications roles, um, struggle with is how do you balance the needs of your family with, the uh, with the demands, demands of, the of job, your career? Yeah. yeah. Now you, you did have a spell at Ketchum back in sort of the late nineties, early two thousand. So it wasn't your first stint at agency. What would you say the highlight was of, no. uh, and you mentioned the highlight being, uh, a highlight being Asia, but what was the sort of biggest sort of thing you accomplished or that you were particularly proud of uh, in those three and a half years back in the agency world? I'd say, you know, that the the most recent job that I've been in the U.S. COO role is probably the most consequential role that I've had inside the firm. You know, and I feel like when you sit in a global role that also sitting in a regional role that really aligns you close to where the business is taking place and closer to clients, um, gives you, allows you to do the global roles in a more effective way, um, but then also bringing a global perspective, you know, into a regional role is key because no client, you know, or very few clients sit within a single region um, for where their work is done. And so, um, but I would say given the size of our business and the impact of the U.S., you know, on Edelman's business, it's about 70% of our business today. Um this has been the most consequential role and, and getting the chance to work with Lisa Ross, who uh, you know well, who is the U.S. CEO, has been, you know, has also been a career highlight. She's a she's a powerhouse. There's no question about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, you've um, you're leaving the agency world at a time, interesting time, because we've seen two very high profile other high-profile client-side person, people 
take on very senior roles in the agency world. So Corey DeBrower has just started as CEO at BCW Group. And uh, Craig Buchholz has just started as US CEO uh, over at Hill & Knowlton Strategies. So it's interesting. And you just did a little stint there. Do you think these are j- this is just a coincidence or is this, uh, is this a trend? You know, we love to identify trends at PR Week. And- yeah, well, I mean, I think it's the could be the beginning of a trend, certainly, because, you know, one of the things that, you know, in I've actually sat, you know, been in an agency job three times over the course of my career. I started my career in a very small PR firm in, uh, in Denver. Then, I, as you mentioned, I spent, you know, um, about three years at Ketchum here in the Bay Area uh, at the middle part of my career. And now, you know, kind of the capstone to my career has been here at Edelman. And I would say that, you know, one of my observations in every one of those um, agency roles that I've had, even uh, at the earliest part of my career, is that there aren't enough people that have sat in the senior most roles on the corporate side, yet agencies are providing support to to clients. And so, you know, I think there's an added sense of credibility that comes with the job on the agency side if you've actually been a CCO or you've sat in the senior most communications roles on the client side, because um, we can bring forward programs that make perfect sense in a, you know, from a pure communication sense. But when you're inside the corporate world, what you realize is, one, there's never consensus on the right course of action. Uh, two, there are always trade-offs. There are legal trade-offs, you know, financial trade-offs, uh, people trade-offs. And so you're always in there, um, you know, with other people from across the C-suite coming up with what you believe is the best business decision to move forward on. And, and so, you know, reputation and communications doesn't trump everything every time. Yeah, because the road is... Understanding, I think, is critically important. Yeah, the road has been much busier going the other way, hasn't it, from agency into the client world, right. not so much coming back in, uh, coming back into agencies. So what would your top right. piece of advice be to Corey and Craig as they embark on their very senior roles in, in agencies? Well, I mean, my piece of advice would be get to know the clients. And, and I, this is the same you know, advice I'd give to anybody going into any company, is really understand the culture I mean, if you if you look at both of those firms, they have long histories. They have long, you know, they have cultures that have been built over time. They've had different changes in leadership, but really, you know, work to understand what the culture is and how you can be most effective within that culture. Um, and I would say also find a way to balance the competing demands on your time. There's going to be the client demands that they have to deal with. There's going to be, you know, the new business demands and going after and securing new business opportunities. And then there's going to be the needs of their people and the ability to balance on those three dimensions is critical. And I think oftentimes, you know, um, unfortunately the the people side of it is what gets, you know, the, you know, shortchanged in that. Um, And so I think my advice is really figure out how to, how to uh, manage on those three dimensions, but also be respective of the culture um, that you're coming in. Yeah, because you can become like an Uber HR person, can't you? Because that could, that could actually take up all your time. And, and you know, <laughs> I mean, I, jo- I joke that I spent, I mean, I, I, I joke, and this is the same on the client side as, as it is the agency side, that I spent my whole career to become an HR person. But, <laughs> but it's important in the sense that, um, you know, it's about deploying people, it's about making sure that they understand what their career path is, it's about making sure that their voice is heard and that they feel valued and that they feel like they're able to contribute to the organization. And so, you know, 
and you know, particularly on the agency side, you're only as good as your people yeah. because your people are what are out there engaging with clients and providing the solutions. So the people side of it cannot be underestimated. Yeah, and the final piece on this part of the topic is do you have to change your mindset a little bit? Because as a client, you've kind of got the red carpet laid out wherever you go, haven't you? The, the agencies are treating you maybe with kid gloves or I don't know if they have they strew rose petals down in front of you when you walk in their office or whether it's, you know, but it's, it's definitely kind of a different type of role than being in the agency where you're kind of in and amongst it, aren't you? You've, you've got to get stuff done. You've got multiple fronts. You've got loads of different clients, whereas on the client side, you've, you've got one major client, which is your brand or your CEO. Is it a change of mindset as well? Yeah, I think there's a bit of a change in mindset. When I was at Chevron, I was in the energy business, right? I was, you know, helping drive, you know, um, the interest of our company, you know, as one of the leading producers of energy in the world. When I was at Levi Strauss, I was in the apparel yeah. business and really how do we get more people to, you know, want to want to wear and buy our products. And so understanding that, because when you're now on the agency side, I'm in the business of providing communications solutions to to clients. So understanding what you do is different. I, I would say too, you know, from my time on the on the client side that I used to say to my team that we're only as good as our agency. Um, because if the if the agency is a true extension of your team and operates as a true partner, then you have to give them the trust that they need to do their job. You have to give them access to leadership and you know and information that they need in order to make the most informed decisions. Um, and so it's a really, it's a two-way, it's a two-way street. Um, but I, I, and the other thing I would say, having been on the client side is that if you look pound for pound um, for, you know, across an agency, people at all levels have more responsibility in terms of real revenue responsibility and deliverables than they do on the, uh, on the client side. And then the final point I was, would make is that in the agency, you can never migrate to the path of least resistance um, because your clients won't let you, um, you know, and the, you know, and on the client side, there are a lot of people that migrate to the path of least resistance. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Now you mentioned Chevron and obviously you spent 16 years there in the energy industry. Edelman has, has got quite a bit of flack, you know, for working with energy clients. There's loads of agencies that work with energy clients, including BCWs right. and H&K. So Corey and Craig will have to pick up on that. And, and, and But Edelman's the biggest in the world and tends to get a lot of the attention. So let's talk about that because what is the case for continuing to work with energy clients? There are some groups that feel, you know, no agencies should work with them at all. What, what's from, from working at Edelman and obviously your time at Chevron, what's the sort of raison d'etre behind uh, continuing to work with energy? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, you know, the energy industry and the integrated energy companies like Chevron are critical to the energy transition. Um, you're not going to have a transition if you don't bring, you know, the big integrated energy companies to the table. They understand the complexities of the existing energy system. They understand how to scale new forms of energy and emerging forms of energy. Um, they have the, the resources to invest in the next generation of energy. And so if you're successful in, you know, in pushing them away, then, you know, what's going to happen is you're going to have some of the state-owned 
you know, oil companies and, and uh, you know, step in to fill the void because the energy is going to continue to be produced. And so, I mean, I think what you see with um, companies like Chevron and Shell and some of those is that they're trying to balance, you know, the need to provide, you know, energy stability, reliability and security while also transitioning to new forms of energy to achieve, you know, a low carbon future. And so, um, the ability to balance on those dimensions, I think, is critical. Um, and I don't think you can have an energy transition if you try to just um, keep one key party away from the discussion and away yeah, from the table. And, and it's just, it playing devil's work. advocate on that, because obviously people feel really strongly about this. Uh, some of the pressure groups say that it's just paying lip service to this topic and that they're, they're just energy companies are just using that as a as an excuse, but they're continuing to invest in fossil fuels and continuing to double down on it. How do you um, respond to that? And how does how do you change the narrative, right? Because how do you get this narrative that of transformation well, higher yeah, up well, and, think, and more understood? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think first, one thing to keep in mind is that the energy industry is used to transformation. It's been you know, constantly transforming over the course of their their history. And so, you know, if you go back to the formation of a lot of these companies, they weren't even in oil and gas. They were in other, you know, forms of energy that were even more challenging than, than fossil fuels are today. And so they've constantly been in a state of transition. Um, I would say that the best way to drive the energy transition is to promote you know, discussion, to promote conversation, to bring all the parties together to figure out are there, how do we move forward, um, you know, with the right solutions. And I would also say that there's no single path to the right outcome, that we have to pursue multiple paths, because if we pick just one path and it only gets us 70 or 80% of the way toward, you know, our targets of net zero by 2050, um, then, you know, that's not a good outcome. And so, I think engagement is important. I think that um, that companies have an obligation to sit down and listen to their critics, just like they sit down and engage their supporters. And I think, you know, I think people that are critical of the industry, you know, should have an obligation to also sit down and have a real conversation about progress. I think that, you know, that stunts and certain things like that don't drive progress. Um, you know, they may, you know, they might drive, a, you know, some um, attention on social channels, but let's talk about what it really takes to drive a real transformation, talk about what it really takes to drive, you know, progress. And, you know, and I think that is driven, you know, by finding common ground. I mean, one of the things I was most proud of during my time at Chevron was a campaign we called We Agree. And we went out and we talked to people um, when we put that campaign together, we talked to people that were our supporters. We talked to people that were our critics. And they, you know, and when we asked them, what do you expect from a company like Chevron? They said, well, we want you to put the planet ahead of profits. We want you to invest in small businesses in the communities you operate. We want you to pay people a, you know, competitive and fair, you know, salary. And we said, well, we agree with all of that. And so what it really struck me at the time was that, you know, what people really were trying to find was common ground. And I remember at that time, we did a, a, uh, an event with the Commonwealth Club here in San Francisco. And we had our CEO um, sitting on stage with the, the head of the Sierra Club. Now, most people would never imagine those two individuals coming together, you know, in a thoughtful conversation. But that's what it was. And, uh, and what 
people discover is there's a lot more common ground um, that you can make progress on. And so that's what I think is critical for the industry. Yeah. Not to forget the Richmond Standard, the local newspapers that you uh, got involved <laughs> with and funded in the in the Valley there in California, a, a great favorite of ours and won a PR Week award or was shortlisted anyway. So, um Yes, I always joke that that's my retirement plan, maybe going and editing the Richmond Standard. But anyway. Well, I mean, there's a standing offer there <laughs> yeah, for you, I'm yes. sure, Steve. I mean, I mean, I mean, you can bring Frank yeah, along. Yeah, we'd, we'd love it. I, I've been through Richmond. Or you can take the Richmond Standard and Frank can go to the Permian. Yeah, Brown. there you go. Um, and just to finish, you've, you finish your Edelman at the end of this month. Um, you know, you're a young man. Yes, it, you're going to spend more time with your family. Can we expect you to sort of reappear in a couple of years? And will you get itchy feet? How will you? How will you? T- you know, uh, I guess you can't say now. Now, but it wouldn't be the biggest surprise in the world well, if we see you coming back in some form or fashion. Uh, when I when I talk to Richard, he thinks I'll have itchy feet within forty five <laughs> days. But the uh, but, but that's but he doesn't share the same opinion that my wife does, and uh, but you know, you know, I look. I'm always going to keep my head in the game. I you know, at some level, but, um, but, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be very selective on what I do in the future, you know, and work, you know, maybe when I work with folks, I mean, I'm going to stay engaged in my current capacity with PepsiCo, which is a Edelman client that I'm, that I touch closely. And so, um, that'll be good, but, uh, but I always have my, you know, my finger in the game at some level. To keep up that subscription to PR week, Dave. So, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. we wish you well. I don't know. I, can I afford it now that I'm retiring? <laughs> I think you can afford it, mate. Um, <laughs> we, we wish you well. We really do. And um, enjoy time with the family. And uh, we look forward to staying in touch with you anyway. And we'll get your input on some of these stories. Frank, over to you. The first one up is Porto Novelli. They finally appointed a new CEO. Yeah, they did. And uh, I think a surprise to a lot of people in that Omnicom PR group appointed Jillian Janchek as CEO of Porto Novelli. It's effective immediately. She is replacing David Bentley, who left the agency in June and reporting up to OPRG CEO Chris Foster. Uh, She also gets a spot on Omnicom's global leadership team. Now, she was most recently president of BCW New York. Chris Foster, also a BCW veteran. And she worked uh, leading the firm's largest market and managing healthcare consumer and corporate practices for Fortune 500 clients. Now, it's interesting. She highlighted her uh, experience in healthcare, which is a sweet spot of Porter Novelli. So looking forward to seeing where she takes the agency. Yeah, um, Porter Novelli, well known for healthcare and also purposeful work. Dave, there's a few uh, new CEOs in the agency sector. Is that just a sort of typical marching of time and, uh, you know, turnover? Or would, was there is there a particular trend, do you think, in transformation at agencies as well? Well, I mean, I think in, you know, in any organization, there's, you know, it's about, it's about change. It's about transformation um, because the world's a dynamic place. And, um, and I think, you know, the interesting thing where I think, you know, agencies have an even more important role to play in, in change because they see what's happening across the business landscape. They see the kind of forces that are reshaping business today. And so, you know, and certainly, you know, healthcare and well-being and all that is one, you know, I think if you look across a number of agencies, you'll see it's it's one of the biggest sectors that they support. I know it's, you know, that's the largest sector 
um, that we support inside Edelman. And so I, I'm not surprised that they're putting somebody that has a healthcare yeah. background in that role. But, um, but yeah, so if you don't change, it's a path to extinction exactly. in, my, in my mind. Yeah, it's uh, over 20% of Edelman's business, which makes it a 200 million plus healthcare firm, which is it's quite something. Another agency group uh, where there are big changes, Frank, is ICF and ICF Next. Fascinating story here in that the private equity firm Cohere Capital acquired ICF Next Commercial Marketing Group, and they're relaunching it as Faden, which uh, they are calling a standalone technology-abled marketing communications company. Uh, Faden's CEO is Chris Tremaine, uh, who was previously the head of ICF's Commercial Marketing Group. Um and the leadership also, the leadership team also includes MDs Tom Madden, Jackie Hopkins, and CFO Mike Beerley. Uh, the firm is going to be primarily located in Minneapolis and Chicago with 250 employees. Now, it's interesting. Uh, we asked Tremaine um, basically what the deal is with, with the buyout and then the relaunch. Uh, and she said the commercial marketing group was, was quote, simply in the wrong home, meaning that uh, ICF, a lot of their business is focused on the federal government, highly regulated industries. Um, and so doing the more consumer focused work might be better someplace else. So uh, Cohere Capital is who they're working with going forward. Yeah, interesting. They, are, they very much are the sort of DC ICF, aren't yeah. they? And, um, and of course, ICF has its roots in in Minneapolis and Chicago, doesn't it, through some of the agencies through they acquired? The, through the Olsons. Yeah, exactly. So um, we'll be interesting to see how they how they uh, spin that out and how they mm-hmm. do, and good luck to them. You know, it's interesting that they're doing that because I think the one of the trends I do see increasingly in um, from a communication standpoint is this kind of three-dimensional chessboard today of marketing communications and brand communications, corporate communications, and increasingly – policy-related communications. Mm. And I think, you know, the, the the agencies that can operate on all those dimensions are the ones that are going to stand apart in the marketplace because these things are interrelated today because of societal issues, because of stakeholder, changing stakeholder expectations, those sorts of things. So from my standpoint, integration is becoming more and more important, not less important. Yeah, it's a good insight. And we've been covering the reorgs at clients, you know, where the CCO might be reporting in different lines or where there might be a, an impact part of the organization or they might be going through corporate affairs, which is the case at right. um, Walgreens, I think. Um, have you seen that in clients? Have, uh, and is that a response to actually the bigger role of communications where the, the companies and the C-suites have said, actually, we need a broader broader way of, of putting this together. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, I do, you know, I, you're, you know you're going to see, I think, more and more corporate affairs heads inside companies where you're bringing government affairs, policy, communications, um, the foundation, you know, maybe the marketing communications piece of it. Um, together, you know, under a single leader to drive, you know, a much more seamless approach in the marketplace. Um, I, I think that's definitely a trend we're going to, yeah. we're going to continue to see. Yeah. And of course, Lisa Russes comes out of the DC world and, and Edelman has made some pl- big plays there in terms of uh, building new divisions and, and acquiring. So uh, you're reflecting right. that on, on your side. Frank, the other thing that's happening and we're seeing more of is agencies becoming B Corps. 
Um, first of all, tell us what a B Corps is, and then tell us why the why this trend is uh, is increasing. And let me shout out Chris Daniels, our our excellent contributor for this, because I learned a lot uh, editing and reading this story. But basically, what a B Corps is is that you have to uh, an organization has to pass certain grades, so to speak, that uh, rank how they com- how they treat various elements of their community, whether that's clients, employees, community, and suppliers uh, through their governance structure, um, and really go beyond uh, just focusing on making a profit. And, and one thing that really jumped out at me about this was how, yes, you have to attain B Corps status, but it's actually just as challenging, if not more challenging, to maintain this every time you have to go through the reaccreditation process. So um, it's an ongoing process. Uh, it's not easy. Most of the agencies that uh, we talk to will tell you, but it does have some benefits in that it is very attractive to some types of clients that are very purpose focused. And it is very attractive in terms of uh, bringing in new employees uh, who prioritize those things as well. So it does have some benefits, but uh, it is good for agencies to know what they're signing up for. Yeah, it's a good point, actually. It's a bit like a restaurant getting a Michelin star, isn't it? And yeah. then keeping it year on year. And it, it, it is a rigorous process. I know that Havas has uh, attained B Corps status in London and in New York. I think that's the other part of it as well. You can't just get a global mm-hmm. um, accreditation. You have to um, apply and, and pass the standards in each territory. I think um, uh, Freud's, the, uh, the very creative PR agency in has got a B Corps accreditation. So uh, actually, I think even Haymarket is going for it um, on the media side, uh, our, so, our, yeah. uh, our parent company. So um, we're, getting, we're getting a taste of it ourselves. We're going to have to do something about you, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one other thing to point out about it, one, one other thing to point out about it is, um, and this is from the CEO of Forrest Marsh Group, the consultancy, is uh, it provides companies who get the certification a lot of networking opportunities with other like-minded companies. It can result in new business. Uh, in some cases, it resulted in some of these organizations going in to buy healthcare for their employees as part of a, a collective almost. Um, so a lot of um, almost intangible benefits, yeah. unique benefits to, to doing this. Interesting yeah, to read about. I remember interviewing the CEO of Danone at our conference a couple of years back, and they're one of the biggest B Corps businesses, you know, Business brands that have actually applied for B Corp. Have you, have you, has that been on your radar at all, Dave? B Corp status? Um, it hasn't really been on my radar until, you know, I saw, I've read a little bit about what uh, Frank's talking about. I think, you know, it's, I think it's smart. I think it's interesting. You know, one, it's not only a market differentiator, but I think it does, you know, attract a certain type of employee and certain yeah. clients. And I think every organization, needs to have a set of principles and values that guide what it does. So I wasn't that familiar with it, but I thought it was quite interesting. Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to back up what Frank said about Chris Daniels, great member of our team. Um, he's been working with us for 15 years. And uh, whilst he's not a staffer, he is, he's a member of our team like everyone else and does great work. But yeah, um, when young people come into a company, they ask, 
what's the culture? That's the, the first question mm. they ask. And uh, this is part of that story. So, yeah, interesting one. So, Frank, do you lie to your dentist? And uh, why are we asking that question? And which toothpaste brand is uh, building a campaign around it? Yeah, that was Colgate. And they were um, holding an event, uh, an activation, as they say, not far from our offices, uh, over in Flatiron Park. And part of it was they constructed uh, what they called a confessional. Uh, in which uh, a visitor would go in and uh, repeat the lies they tell their dentist and be sort of beamed on the side of a building. Um, yikes. Uh, I <laughs> uh, hope my dentist isn't listening this week. So, uh, But it's, you know, it's an interesting pop-up. Uh, and they definitely gave away free products as well uh, and got some headlines out of yeah, it. Good, so good, interesting. Good, good old-fashioned piece of creative PR, yep, yep. actually. The power um, company is Colgate Palmolive, by the way. Yeah. The ones that catch it's like when the doctor asks you how much do you how many units do you drink a week, isn't it? It's like well, they always know to double it, but I mean, it, it, there's no right answer to that one, is it? I, when the dentist asks me how often you floss, you I do lie. There's no doubt about it. And then, do you wear your how do you wear your mouth guard? And I'm like, yes, yes, no, I never wear it. You know. So, um, how about you, Dave? Do you do, do you lie to your dentist? Well, I mean, I, well, the, first of all, this reminds me, is this the modern day version of only uh, Steve's hairdresser knows? Or? <laughs> well, my uh, visits but, uh, to the hairdresser are, are frequent, <laughs> but very short because there's not a lot to work with. So just a quick, a quick scrape over. <laughs> I was just surprised people could actually uh, tell a lie while, while they had the dentist's hand in their mouth. Well, that's the, yeah. uh, oh, that's, the thing uh, that struck me. So. When they've got the drill going. You'd... But I have, I mean, you know, I have to be honest when, uh, when my, and it's usually my dental hygienist, the person that's cleaning my teeth says, are you flossing regularly? <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. flossing regularly. <laughs> yeah, we all do. It's, it was very smart insight, actually. It really is. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's a very clever. No, it is. Me. It really is. So, uh, and another interesting one, Frank, is this Ikea one where they got the big blue bag activation and uh, involved QR codes, which are back, the, aren't they? Popped up in the same place over... Uh, over by the Flatiron building. This is a bit lazy. Is we just this is what we're doing to get news, just wandering around the neighborhood and seeing who's doing what. Yeah, yeah right on the way from the train on the <laughs> yeah. way over. Um, I did hear some comments that the QR code was a little bit hard to uh, hard to find. But um, so IKEA's concept behind this was that uh, what is more iconic than their uh, big blue bag? I think some of the the meatballs and the food items they have at the cafeteria could have worked too. But the big blue bag, it is iconic. And, you know, everybody has one and uses them for for various things around the house or storage or carrying awkward size things in my case. And it's, uh, you know, you you see people carrying their laundry all the time in them and they are iconic and so why not you know blow them up and make this uh, a big thing uh also showcases their affordability the company says yeah do you remember when zlatan was in interviewed um when he came over to play for was it la and yeah, he, uh he uh his wife was in charge of getting them a property and he'd said can you get make sure you get a furnished property because you know we're not going to be here long and uh i don't want to be messing around getting furniture of course she she got one that was unfurnished and Ikea got the best publicity it's had for a long time because obviously Zlatan is Swedish and so is Ikea. And he says, so so we went to Ikea to get all our furniture and it was, uh, you know, 
perfect piece of PR for them. And uh, anything, if you can get Zlatan's endorsement, I mean, mm. you're doing you're doing well, aren't you? So uh, he is a legend, as we've said many times yeah. on this show. And this last story is, is in the neighbourhood too. I'm not sure if any of our folks were down at this riot on Union Square um, last Friday. Well, nobody, but- nobody asked me for bail money. <laughs> so... <laughs> But we uh, do have good. summer Fridays, though, don't we? So people could have yeah, uh, skipped off and, and headed down there. What, what went well, on? Well, it's funny because I saw it on TV. I saw it on the local news in the afternoon. And it was one of those, you know, from the helicopter overhead shots. And I, I was was very concerned for a minute and then saw it was a, an influencer event gone awry. And I was, I mean, I was suddenly less concerned. But, but still, some kids got scraped up at this. And it's a serious thing. So basically, the, what happened here is uh, Twitch influencer Kai Sinat promised to be giving away free PlayStation 5s and uh, got mobbed by, uh, it's been described as a bunch of, of teens and preteens, but um, it, it, they did get very rowdy and it had to be broken up by the police and some people were charged and um, turned into a not funny uh, incident. But I think it's a, it's a lesson in that how much power these these creators or influencers or whatever you want to call them have on Twitch have on these various platforms and if they're not responsible the harm they could do and it's not just them by the way because there was an apology over the weekend from amp group which is the pr firm that uh that works with sanat you know apologizing for their role in it and i i also think in cases like this where you're working with young influencers the the agencies have to be the adults in the room and mm. so um they need to step up to make sure these things don't happen when you're having the live events. Is there a chance he's going to, there's been talk of him facing jail time for this? Yeah. Yeah. No, he's been, uh, he, he was charged with inciting a riot wow. and more than 60 people were arrested. Uh, some police officers were injured. Some, some of the people who attended were also injured. Um, it's really pretty wild. Yeah. It sounded like the police handled it pretty well, actually. Um, from what I can hear, but that would certainly break up the old chess games that go on mm. down at Union Square, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The, yeah, it, the pieces uh, would be but I have flying. to say, I, I mean, look, I, you know, we write about the power of influencers all the time, but it, I think you even had to be surprised at how quickly that crowd got down there. Yeah, Dave, influencers were maybe when you started in, I mean, PR has always been about influence, hasn't it? Um, but it was different back yeah. in the day when there was no social media, there wasn't even cell phones and, you know, communication was very different. Nowadays, some of these influences are so powerful. They're, they, they're more powerful than the traditional media, mainstream media, which gets bypassed. And a, a message like this can get out so quickly. And this is just an example of what can happen. But it does show the power of it, you know, whether it was for ill or good, you know. Yeah, I mean, well, I think I remember my days at, at Levi Strauss. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a sense that all publicity is good publicity. <laughs> and, uh, and, that's, and I don't think that's ever been the case. In fact, I remember situation we had there actually in New York City as well, where we had taken Docker's pants and we put them behind the glass, you know, between the glass plates on bus shelters. And then behind the uh, the Dockers, we had drawn a little chalk line. And um, and so the, the marketers that launched that program, um, they knew that people were likely to break the glass right. to get to the Dockers. Yeah. And so that resulted in a, an A1 story in the New York Times. And when Giuliani was mayor, that, you know, Levi's was inciting, you know, vandalism in New York City. So it was, you know, it was a clever maybe marketing idea, but it, they didn't think through the, the real implications yeah. of what they were doing. And I think 
you know, that's certainly true on some of these influencers. You know, one of the things I, I liked about the IKEA, you know, is I think IKEA is a company that's always been a bit thoughtful about these things and really thinking through the full, you know, extent of what the implications of what they do might be. Uh, and this one, I, I think maybe not so much. Yeah. No, it's a good point on the uh, Levi's one. Were you there when that guy shot himself accidentally while he was trying a pair of jeans on? Apparently, no, that that was, was, that, yeah. that was after your time. That was, it, that was a, I think that was like in an open carry state. Yeah, like Texas and I think it did inform Levi's you know, high-profile work on that issue, actually, which has been terrific, really, really yeah, terrific. Absolutely. I remember that um, installation opposite Pier 1 where there was a cross for every person who died in, a, in gun crime. It was very impactful. And, of course, where they yeah. covered the, the football pitch with jeans as, as well. So, yeah. Yeah, no, they've done a remarkable job on that issue and on uh, voter registration and things like that. I mean, and that's kind of core to their heritage. No, absolutely. Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today and over the years. And I hope this is uh, not goodbye, but just uh, au revoir. And uh, we wish you well with the retirement and spending more time with the fam. Thank you so much, Steve. It's uh, I've enjoyed, you know, the friendship that we've built over the years and uh, and everything you're doing to advance the profession. And uh, thank you for your contributions. Yeah, we appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, good luck. And uh, thank you, Frank, as thank always. You. Thank you, Producer Fitz. Don't forget, uh, the best places to work, the surveys are going out now. So people, agencies have registered. I think you can still register if you want to be involved. Um, but you need to do that quickly. Gideon Fiddlesite is the person to contact on that. And then the surveys will go out to staffers. It's the 25th anniversary of PR Week US this year, as you know, and the 25th anniversary of the PR Week Awards in uh, next March. So they're open for entries. You've got until the 29th of September. So if there's one to win, it's a 25th anniversary Oscar of PR, isn't it? Make sure you're working on those. PR Decoded will be the big conference in Chicago on the 11th and 12th of October, which uh, features the Purpose Awards on the 11th, the evening of the 11th. The shortlist for that will be out next week, I think, the 16th of August. And uh, 40 Under 40, that will be – always love that event – will be celebrated at a ceremony in New York on the 26th. And we're trying to get a party together for our 25th anniversary in September. So more to come on that. And look out for a bumper package of content, all sorts of fun stuff we're doing to celebrate that, both in print in a special anniversary edition and online. But that's all we got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week.